Chapter 32 Cutting Through Spiritual Materialism Please reach into the medicine bag. There you will find the collected works. You may follow along word by word, and so I will read this entire verse. I reached into the medicine man's bag, and there I found an orange book. The title was called Cutting Through Spiritual Materialism, and there I found a unique seal stamped upon it. We have come here to learn about spirituality. I trust the genuine quality of this search, but we must question its nature. The problem arises when ego can convert anything to its own use, even spirituality or religion. Ego is constantly attempting to acquire and apply the teachings of religion or spirituality for its own benefit. The teachings can be treated as an external thing, external to me, a philosophy which we try to imitate. Do we actually want to identify with or become the teachings? So if our teacher or priest speaks of renunciation of ego, we attempt to mimic renunciation of ego. We go through the motions, make the appropriate gestures, but we really do not want to sacrifice any part of our way of life. We become skillful actors, and while playing deaf and dumb to the real meaning of the teachings, we find some comfort in pretending to follow the path. Whenever we begin to feel any discrepancy or conflict between our actions and the teachings, we immediately interpret the situation in such a way that the conflict is smoothed over. The interpreter is ego in the role of a spiritual advisor. The situation is like that of a country where church and state are separate. If the policy of the state is foreign to the teachings of the church, then the automatic reaction of the king is to go to the head of the church, his spiritual advisor, and ask his blessing. The head of the church then works out some justification and gives the policy his blessing under the pretense that the king is the protector for the faith. In an individual's mind, it works out very neatly that way, ego being both king and head of church. This rationalization of the spiritual path and one's actions must be cut through if true awakening is to be realized. However, such rationalizing is not easy to deal with because everything is seen through the filter of ego's philosophy and logic, making all appear neat, precise, and very logical. We attempt to find a self-justifying answer for every question. In order to reassure ourselves, we work to fit our intellectual scheme into every aspect of our lives, which might be confusing. And our effort is so serious and solemn, so straightforward and sincere, that it is difficult to be suspicious of it. We must always trust the integrity of our spiritual advisor. It does not matter what we use to achieve self-justification. The wisdom of sacred books, diagrams or charts, mathematical calculations, esoteric formulas, fundamentalist religions, depth psychology, or any other mechanism. Whenever we begin to evaluate, deciding that we should not do this or that, then we have already associated our practice or knowledge with categories, one pitted against the other. And that is spiritual materialism, the false spirituality of our spiritual advisor. Whenever we have a dualistic notion such as, 
I am doing this because I want to get to heaven, or I am doing this because I want to achieve a particular state of being, then automatically we separate ourselves from the reality of what we are. If we ask ourselves, what is wrong with evaluating with taking sides? Then the answer is that when we formulate a secondary judgment, I think I should be doing this and should avoid doing that, then we have achieved a level of complication which takes us a long way from the basic simplicity of what we are. The simplicity of meditation means just experience the eighth instinct of ego. If anything more than this is laid onto our psychology, then it becomes very heavy, a thick mask or a thick suit of armor. It is important to see that the main point of any spiritual practice is to step out of the bureaucracy of ego. This means stepping out of ego's constant desire for a higher, more spiritual, more transcendental version of knowledge, religion, virtue, judgment, comfort, or whatever it is that the particular ego is seeking. One must step out of spiritual materialism. If we do not step out of spiritual materialism, if we in fact practice it, then we may eventually find ourselves possessed by believing we know the only way, or it may be that we have a huge collection of spiritual paths. We may feel these spiritual collections to be very precious. We have studied so much. We have studied the Western philosophies and religions, then the Oriental philosophies, practiced yoga, prayed, or perhaps studied with dozens of great masters and priests. We have achieved and we have learned. We believe that we have accumulated a hoard of knowledge. And yet, having gone through all of this, there is still something to give up. It is extremely mysterious. Our vast collections of knowledge and experience are just part of ego's display, part of the grandiose quality of ego. We display that to the world, and in doing so, reassure ourselves that we exist. We claim to know the only true way, and that we are safe and secure as religions or spiritual people. But we have simply created a shop, an antique shop. We could be specializing in oriental techniques, or Christian antiques gathered from the great saints and church leaders. Here we cling to old bones, symbols, and even monuments from other civilizations or time. But we are, nonetheless, running a shop even if we don't sell these items. Churches here are trying to get followers to buy into their way, their religious beliefs, or cult. Before we filled our shop with so many things, the room was already beautiful. Whitewashed walls and a very simple floor with a bright lamp burning in the ceiling. There was an object of art in the middle of the room. This is our soul, and it is beautiful. Everyone who came appreciates its beauty, including ourselves. But we were not satisfied, and we thought, since this one soul makes my room so beautiful, if I get more antiques, my room will be even more beautiful. So we began to collect, and the end result was chaos. We searched the world over and over for beautiful objects. Cathedrals in France have them. England has stolen from India and Africa. Italy clings to the Roman, Greek, and Christian antiques. And the same with China, Japan, and all the other countries. And each time we found an antique, because we were dealing with only one object at a time, we saw it as beautiful and thought it would be beautiful in our shop. But when we brought the object home and put it there, 
it became just another addition to our collection. The beauty of the object did not radiate out anymore because it was surrounded by so many other beautiful things. It did not mean anything anymore. Instead of a room full of the soul, we created an antique junk shop. Proper shopping does not entail collecting a lot of information or beauty, but it involves fully appreciating each individual object. This is very important. If you really appreciate an object of beauty, then you completely identify with it and forget yourself. It's like seeing a very interesting, fascinating movie and forgetting that you are the audience. At that moment, there is no world. Your whole being is in the scene of that movie. It is that kind of identification, complete involvement with that thing. Did we actually taste a great dinner and chew it and swallow it properly? Just like the one object of beauty or that one spiritual teaching, or did we merely regard it as a part of our vast and growing collection? I place so much emphasis on this point because I know that the sincere followers have come to the teachings and practice of prayer and meditation not to make a lot of money, but because we genuinely want to learn. We want to develop ourselves. But if we regard knowledge as an antique, as ancient wisdom to be collected, then we are on the wrong path. As far as the lineage of teachers and priests are concerned, knowledge is not handed down like an antique. Rather, one teacher or priest experiences the truth of the teachings and then hands down the teachings to another student and so the process goes on. The teachings are always up to date. They are not ancient wisdom of an old age. The teachings are not passed along as information, handed down as a grandfather telling traditional folk tales to his grandchildren. It does not work that way. It is a real experience. Therefore, the truth of faith or Dharma is applicable to every age, to every person, because it has a living quality. It is not enough to imitate Jesus, your teacher, master, or your guru. You are not trying to become a replica of your teacher. The teachings are an individual personal experience, right down to the present holder of the doctrine. Imagine any teacher from our past, be it Moses, Mother Mary, Muhammad of the Islamic faith, St. Teresa, Buddha, Jesus, St. Teresa of Avila, St. Teresa of Calcutta, Harriet Tubman, or even St. Francis. We are familiar with their stories, and it was a living experience for each of them. And it continues as a living experience for the present holders of the lineage. Only the details of their life situations are different. The teachings have the quality of warm, fresh-baked bread. The bread is still warm and hot and fresh. Each baker must apply the general knowledge of how to make bread to his or her particular dough and oven. This is how they are relating their experience with their religion, land, culture, and community. Then we must personally experience the freshness of this bread, and we must cut it fresh and eat it warm. We must make the teachings our own and practice them. It is a very living process. There is no deception in terms of collecting knowledge. We must work with our individual experiences. When we become confused, we cannot turn back to our collection of knowledge and try to find some confirmation or consolation thinking, I have found the right belief, religion, or faith, and so I have my ticket to heaven. This is purely ego. 
putting yourself separate from everything else and above everyone else. How can we say, Jesus, or whatever teacher, and the whole religion is on my side? This is ego. The spiritual path of awakening does not go that way. It is an individual path, she said. So who do you follow? I asked. Situations are the voice of my teacher, the presence of my teacher, she said. Can we identify with the religion, or are you saying we must not? You as an individual must find your path, and so that path may include a religion, but each religion is a framework or a map to help a person cultivate faith. Faith is not blind faith. It is the teachings in action. Look at Jesus, Muhammad, Buddha, or any other great teacher. The religions that were modeled after them were not the religions they founded. They did not set out to make a religion and dominate the world like so many religions do. Rather, churches and religions were created in these prophets' images. The problem arises when these churches began converting in aggressive ways with crusades, forcing people to convert, and dominating others throughout the land. This has been found in all faiths, and it is the epitome of ego. Modern-day religions are stained with the marks of ego, she said. What is faith? Faith could be simple-minded, trusting, blind faith, or it could be definite confidence which cannot be destroyed. Blind faith has little inspiration. It is very naive. It is not creative, though not exactly destructive. You yourself barely have had to make any connection or communication. You just blindly accepted the whole belief, very naively. In the case of faith as confidence, there is a living reason to be confident. You do not expect that there will be a prefabricated solution mysteriously presented to you. You work with existing situations without fear, without any doubt involving yourself. This approach is extremely creative and positive. If you have definite confidence, you are so sure of yourself that you do not have to check yourself. It is absolute confidence, a real understanding of what is going on now. Therefore, you do not hesitate to follow other paths or deal whatever way is necessary with each new situation. She said, what guides you on your path? There does not seem to be any particular guidance. In fact, if someone is guiding you, that is suspicious, because you are relying on something external. Being fully what you are in yourself becomes guidance, but not in the sense of vanguard, because you do not have a guide to follow. You do not have to follow someone's tail, but you sail along. In other words, the guide does not walk ahead of you, but walks with you. She said, why do you think that people are so protective of their ego? Why is it so hard to let go of one's ego? People are afraid of the emptiness of space, or the absence of company, the absence of a shadow. It could be a terrifying experience to have no one to relate to, nothing to relate with. The idea of it can be extremely frightening, though not the real experience. It is a fear of space, a fear that we will not be able to anchor ourselves to any solid ground that we will lose our identity as a fixed and solid and definite thing. This could seem very threatening, she said. And this is grasping. This fear is what drives the ego to attachment, to cling to certain ideas and things. And is that what creates suffering? Yes, 
The ego tries to maintain its own survival, own stability, own religion, and it would even accuse others of being banished to hell. The ego is the suicide bomber who seeks to dominate and control, but this ego is the same in the leaders of the world and church who claim that they know the only way. What way? The way through the galaxies? The way through the stars and constellations? Or are they claiming you should follow them so the ground of their teachings appears to be fixed and stable? But then what is stability if everything is changing, if nothing is constant? Nature is our teacher, and yet the great empires build castles, walls, governments, and yet nature has outlived the human race by billions of years. Ego will not make it, but the true nature will. She said, and yet I am human, so I cannot survive forever. Then what must I do? Surrender. It is a process of letting go. The only way you can really help yourself or anyone else is to work on yourself and to learn the art of letting go. At this point, we may have come to the conclusion that we should drop the whole game of spiritual materialism. That is, we should give up trying to defend and improve ourselves. We may have glimpsed that our struggle is futile and may wish to surrender, to completely abandon our efforts to defend ourselves. But how many of us could actually do this? It is not as simple and easy as we might think. To what degree could we really let go and be open? At what point would we become defensive? She said. What does it mean to surrender? To surrender means opening oneself up completely, trying to get beyond fascination and expectation. Surrender also means acknowledging the raw, rugged, clumsy, and shocking qualities of one's ego, acknowledging them and surrendering them as well. The surrendering to our raw and rugged qualities of ego can be very difficult because we may hate ourselves. Even if we begin to give up our self-criticism, then we may feel that we are losing our occupation as though someone was taking away our job. We would have no further occupation or purpose if we were to surrender everything. There would be nothing to hold on to. Self-evaluation and self-criticism are neurotic tendencies which derive from our not having enough confidence in ourselves. Confidence in the sense of seeing what we are, knowing what we are, knowing that we can afford to open. We can afford to surrender that raw and rugged neurotic quality of self because although we are living in a human body, we are not the human body. We are a spiritual essence having a human experience. We must surrender our hopes and expectations, as well as our fears and march directly into disappointment. Work with disappointment. Go into it and make it our way of life, which is a very hard thing to do. The truth is that the body is dying and that none of our bodies will live forever. Yet the ego grips at life to survive, to thrive, to conquer and kill whoever is in the way. But to accept the disappointment of death is a good sign of basic intelligence. It cannot be compared to anything else. Death is so sharp, precise, obvious, and direct. If we can open, then we suddenly begin to see that our expectations are irrelevant compared with the reality of the situations we are facing. This automatically brings a feeling of disappointment. Here we realize we cannot outlive death, but still, our spiritual nature goes beyond it. She said, Ah, so. Now you know.
and disappointment is the best chariot to use on the path of truth. It does not confirm the existence of our ego and its dreams. However, if we are involved with spiritual materialism, if we regard religion or spirituality as a part of our accumulation of learning and virtue, if spirituality or religion becomes a way of building ourselves up, then of course the whole process of surrendering is completely distorted. If we regard religion or spirituality as a way of making ourselves comfortable, then whenever we experience something unpleasant, a disappointment, we try to rationalize it. We might say, we are the followers of the Lord, that he will save us, or that we must be the wisdom of the guru, because I know the teacher doesn't do harmful things, and whatever the teacher does is right, so I can afford to be open, I can safely surrender. We say that we know we are on the right path, but something is not quite right about such an attitude. It is, at best, a bit naive. We are captivated by the awesome, inspiring, dignified, and colorful aspect of the savior or guru. In this sense, we believe that I've made it. I have experienced it, that I am a self-made person, and I know everything because I've read the books and they confirm my beliefs, my rightness, my ideas, and everything coincides. This is holding back in another way, not really surrendering, because we feel that we are very sophisticated and dignified people. We have the feeling that every step of the path we tread should be comfortable, like walking upon a lotus petal, and we develop a logic that interprets whatever happens to us accordingly. If we fall, we create a soft landing, which prevents sudden shock. Surrendering does not involve preparing for a soft landing. It means just landing on hard, ordinary ground, on rocky, wild countryside. Once we open ourselves up, then we land on what is. This is what Jesus did. He was tortured. He stumbled and fell upon the raw and rugged ground up to his death in a way to surrender. She said, Can you talk about Jesus' path? The path of Jesus is so profound because he let go of everything to teach us about the nature of love and compassion. Many of us erect armor around our soft hearts and this causes a lot of misery. So many of us want to protect ourselves with guns, with armor, with weapons and walls. But Jesus was the ultimate expression of openness, of gentleness, and this is the highest path of surrendering. She said, Is there a way to practice surrendering? Traditionally, surrendering is symbolized by such practices as prostration, which is the act of falling on the ground in a gesture of surrender. At the same time, we open psychologically and surrender completely by identifying ourselves with the lowest of low, acknowledging our raw and rugged quality. There is nothing we fear to lose once we identify ourselves with the lowest of the low. By doing so, we prepare ourselves to be an empty vessel, ready to receive the teachings. We must be willing to open our eyes to the circumstances of life as they are, not as we wish them to be. Take refuge in the teacher, take refuge in the teachings or the Dharma, and take refuge in the community of people who are all on the path of opening their hearts. Share the experience with the whole environment of life, with all the fellow pilgrims and commoners like yourself. 
share it with your fellow searchers, those who walk with us. Now we must not lean on others for support, as there is a tendency to lean on, cling, and grasp onto others. If a group of people leans upon the other, then what happens if one would fall down? Everyone falls down. So we do not lean, grasp, or attach to anyone else. We just walk with each other, side by side, shoulder to shoulder, working with each other, going along with each other. This approach to surrendering and taking refuge is very profound. She said, Is there a wrong way to take refuge? The wrong way to take refuge involves seeking shelter or worshiping deities as if they are greater than you. There are those who pray to God or worship mountains, sun gods, moon gods, but all of creation is not separate from you. You are part of creation, and so creation is within you. When we bow to an ocean, we cannot place the ocean apart from ourselves, but we must honor it as an outward expression of what is within us. When you pray to the mountains, you do not say, I bow to you who are so much greater than me, but rather you bow to that which is an expression of all of us. Of course, an ego would claim that I am that mountain or say, I am a goddess. But the awakened one knows that the mountain is us, all of us. Surrendering is not a question of being low and stupid, nor of wanting to be elevated and profound. It has nothing to do with levels of evaluation. Instead, we surrender because we would like to communicate with the world as it is. We do not classify ourselves as learners or ignorant people. We are not embarrassed about our raw, rugged, beautiful, and clean quality. We present everything to the object of our surrendering. Work together with inspiration, so that one becomes an open vessel into which knowledge can be poured through. She said, O oh, great teacher, you are the revealer of the Dharma, which is true, and so I must know. Who are you? Surely they have given you titles. Now what resides within? How far have you come, and where did you begin? And so the woman with ten bodies, ten heads, and ten crowns rose out from the sea. Then she pried off her head and laid this face beside my feet. Now she wore a copper mask, and this man had one eye. I am you looking back. Once I was given a name, and it was Ma Kali Jack, she said. My brother Amokli? There I fell to my teacher's feet. For this man saved Manuka and I. He was the one who let me free. When I was still asleep and could not quite see, he freed me from the pyramid. Oh, it was Amokli who saved me. Forgive me when I have forsaken you. I abandoned my long-lost brother, for I could not see it was you when you wore the mask as your cover. For you are the great medicine man, the preserver and the one who goes on. You have given up your own body, mind, and ego, so that the awakening may dawn. Om gate gate, paragate, parasamgate, bodhisvaha. Gone, gone, beyond far gone, beyond far gone to the other shore. There a chariot carries the rising sun's dawn. She said, Amokli's flint stones were in the medicine bag, and somehow I covered myself in a black cloak. I'd felt the connection to him and the land, 
every time I lit the herbs to inhale the earth smoke. Can you find the humor? And so you may laugh at this as a joke. How am I you? Now do you realize that you are the intuition that first spoke? You are the truth. You are the cosmos and this land. You are the chaos and confusion within the great order. And you are one with all women, children, and man. For those who have the courage to depart without a teacher, then you can find how the great teacher lives within. The spiritual source is the Atman, from which all creation begins. This is Savitar, the dawn of the rising sun, the Bodhi of the awakening seed that all spirit is from. Many seek teachers because they want to get something from them, be it wisdom, happiness, or peace of mind. But whatever it is that we seek, we often forget that this is a quest in which our ego seeks to find. Make a commitment to yourself, not by dressing up, applying for a job, but give up everything and surrender yourself to the path. And that path is to the source of creation many call God. For this path became the goal. It is a journey into your own nature. And there you can find me waiting within the silence. And now I remind you that you were always our protector. It is important to have spiritual friends, but there is a reason you yourself entered into the masculine ritual process long ago. By realizing that no one external was coming to save you, we take it upon ourselves to inquire into who we are, and that is where we discover the self-existing spiritual whole. We must open ourselves completely, and this can be very difficult to do, both around foes and friends. Many tests and situations arise, and these take the form of disappointment in the end. That disappointment forces us to deal with our own hypocrisy, which is the twist of ego. It is extremely hard to face oneself. After battling through your own thick skin, you realize all you could do was surrender and let go. We tend to wear thick suits of armor, one over the other. These are masks and disguises to hide us from the world of distant sisters and brothers. But what is underneath this armor? Oh, how many of us would rather not expose ourselves and completely undress? We hope that by stripping off only a few layers, we'd be presentable. But this is the path of opening, and so this too is a great test. Only once we are fundamentally naked can the meeting of two minds begin to take place. The more you let go, then I begin to show you my truest face. This face is within you. It is the spiritual self. And yet when we do not grasp or attach to the ego, then we align with no self. We are one, we are all. We are infinitely large and infinitesimally small. Often when one starts on this path, they seek a teacher or spiritual friend. And it's like going to a supermarket. You are excited and you dream of all the things you can buy. But this is your ego's grasping. And so you'll realize that the truth you're seeking, well, you're actually far from it. Next, the relationship with a priest, teacher, or spiritual friend is like going to court. As though you were a criminal, you are not able to meet your teacher's demands, and you begin to feel self-conscious. The teacher seems to know as much about you as you know about yourself. This is extremely embarrassing, because you're still trying to understand your own self. The stage after this is like a cow happily grazing, because when you go to see your teacher or spiritual friend, 
you admire the peacefulness and admire the landscaping. Finally, the last stage with a teacher or spiritual friend is like passing a rock in the road. You do not even pay attention to it. You just pass by and walk onward while you go. In the beginning there was a courtship, as if you were trying to win over someone. But by the end, the spiritual friend, priest, and teacher is within you. For this is the realization that the teacher lives within and must be discovered. Said the woman who'd been wearing the one-eyed mask, who called herself the one-eyed Jack. My lord, my brother, my goddess, and mother, then when I bow to you, I am bowing to everyone else. When I look into your eyes, then I am looking at my own self. I see that self-deception is a constant problem as I progress along this spiritual path. For ego tried to achieve spirituality. Now I should open myself up to reality, and we should relate with the world around us in actuality. And so, as a teacher, a spiritual friend can act as a mirror. We need someone personally connected with us as we really are. And whenever we are involved in any kind of self-deception, it is necessary for us to be opened. And so any grasping attitudes must be exposed so we can move beyond hope and fear. Real initiation takes place in terms of a meeting of the two minds. It is not a matter of joining a club or being one of the flocks because only the ego wishes that we're not left behind. We must first open ourselves up, but then we must also experience a flash of insight. This insight is the understanding part of the teachings. And as the teacher assists with the situation, we can experience this flash and realize that everything is fine. At first, this is very exciting and everything is very beautiful. We might find that for several days, we feel high or elevated. There are even stories of certain students discovering this feeling and then once it fades, they try to preserve the experience or recreate it. And so the ego tries and tries and tries. One feels that they have had a sudden experience of the awakened state of mind and belongs to a category of holiness or mystical experience. And so one may even tell their friends, family, or whoever about what they have overcome as they felt this onset of transcendence. Yet there is just the memory and there is no way to capture that feeling. We may even feel fear from being separated from it. And we consider that sudden inspiration to be extraordinarily important. But this is because we are afraid of losing it. And this is when self-deception comes in. In other words, we lost faith in the experience of openness and we don't wish for a new experience to begin. Somehow we lose the unity of openness and what we are. Now openness becomes a separate thing and then we begin to play games. And we cannot say that we are used to having this openness or that we have lost it because that will destroy our status as an accomplished person. If we try to bring up memories from the past, then we are just seeking comfort for us. But reality is both in the good and the bad of how we perceive life. Thus ego is continually looking for inspiration, which isn't rooted in the present. If one searches for any kind of joy or bliss, then realization of one's imagination and dreams are going to suffer failure and depression. The point is that even if you become a god on earth, even if you are the king of your sport or the politician of the land, 
you too must surrender and give everything back, since death comes for every single woman and man. This is the whole point. If you live in fear of separation, or even if you have the hopes of attaining spiritual union, this is just your ego grasping at desired outcomes, and this itself is the basis of samsara and the world's illusion. This is the sleeping state, the way the world is running on automatic, chasing material delusions. The fact is that you can take nothing with you once the body dies, and so we fear or hope for the things we are bound to end up losing. Fear, hope, loss, gain, these are all the ongoing action of the dream of ego, the self-perpetuating, self-maintaining structure which is self-deception. So the real experience, beyond the dream world, is the beauty and color and excitement of the real experience of now in everyday life. When we face things as they are, we give up the hope of something better. There will be no magic because we cannot tell ourselves to get out of our depression. Depression and ignorance, the emotions, whatever we experience, are all real and contain tremendous truth. If we want to learn and see the experience of truth, we have to be where we are. The whole thing is just a matter of being a grain of sand, she said. And is that the true measure of a man? Inasmuch as no one is going to save us, to the extent that no one is going to magically enlighten us, the path we are discussing is called the hard way. This path does not conform to our expectation that expects life to be gentle, peaceful, pleasant, and compassionate. It is the hard way, a simple meeting of two minds. And if you open your mind, if you are willing to meet, then the teacher appears to open his or her mind as well. It is not a question of magic, as the condition of openness is a mutual creation. She said, but what about freedom? When we speak about freedom or liberation, we think that someone else will take care of us. We tend to think that all we have to do is make a commitment to the organization to pay our fee, sign the register, show up on Sunday, and then follow the instructions given to us. This attitude supplies the comfort of having to do nothing but follow orders. Everything is left to the other person to instruct you and relieve you of your shortcomings. But to our surprise, things do not work out that way. The idea that we do not have to do anything on our own is extremely wishful thinking. It takes tremendous effort to work one's way through the difficulties of the path and to actually get into the situations of life thoroughly and properly. So the whole point of the hard way seems to be that some individual effort must be made by the individual to acknowledge him or herself. This is the process of unmasking. And so one must be willing to stand alone, which is difficult. This is what Jesus did. She said, As I contemplated what was going on, I could hear everything she said. And as I looked at my surroundings, I realized that I was alone, listening to the spiritual voice within the shores of my own head. Now this way may be hard, but it is not so heroic. The idea of heroism is based on the idea that something is bad, impure, and that we are not worthy or ready for spiritual understanding, that we must reform ourselves or be different from what we are. It's not saying you need to give up your job or drop out or saying perhaps to drugs. If we are hippies, we must give up the drugs, cut our hair, 
throw away our torn jeans. We think that we are special, heroic, that we are turning away from temptation. We become vegetarians and we become this or that. There are so many things to become. We think our path is spiritual because it is again the flow of what we used to be, but it becomes a way of false heroism. And the only one who is heroic in this way is ego. When we carry this sort of false heroism to great extremes, getting ourselves into completely austere situations, in this way the ego says, look at how long I can sit in cold water. I can fast for many days. Or, look at me, I sat in the darkness for a week straight. The ego goes on and on deluding you, trying to prove how far your body can go without a break. It says, look at how great I can go into these yogic postures, and look at how holy I appear to be. Oh, look at me, look at me, surely I'm enlightened, don't you see? Oh, please, please, look at me. But the key is that it's not about the me, it is about the us. Can you fast as an offering for all of us? Can you offer up your discomforts for the relief of suffering of all beings? Can you get through a workout without looking in the mirror? Can you tune the voice in your head so that the welfare of others is all you can hear? We might even attempt to imitate certain spiritual paths. And so we have found whatever the path of discipline is. We struggle through the difficulties of any path and become quite competent. We are masters of discipline of sorts. And so we expect magic and wisdom of our training and practice to bring us into the right state of mind. Sometimes we think we have achieved our goal. Perhaps we are completely high or absorbed for a period of six or seven months. Then later our ecstasy disappears. And again we are left clinging to hope and fears. And so it goes on and on and on and off. How are we going to deal with this situation? We may be able to stay high or blissful for a very long time, but then we have to come back down and return to normal. She said. Then what is the point? So the point we come back to is that some kind of real gift or sacrifice is needed if we are to open ourselves up completely. Sacrifice always means the renunciation of a valuable part of ourself, and through it, the sacrificer escapes being devoured. Look at Jesus. This is his resurrection. And in order for it to be meaningful, it must entail giving up our hope of getting something in return. It does not matter how many titles we have won, nor how many suits of exotic cloth we have worn, or how many philosophies, commitments, or sacramental ceremonies we have participated in. We must give up our ambition to get something in return for our gift. That is a really hard way. Jesus didn't die so he himself could get to heaven. He died as the ultimate expression of love, of compassion for the world, to benefit the suffering of all beings. That is Jesus' way. She said, and what is it about this way that is so hard? It is the open way. And in order to find the open way, we must first experience self-deception as it is. Exposing ourselves completely, we may be hesitant to consider this open way because we are so wary of our ambition. This hesitation could be a form of self-deception where we ignore the teachings with the idea of trying to be perfect and extremely careful. We must open ourselves to life, 
being just the way you are, presenting your positive and negative qualities to your teachers, and then working your way through. The problem lies in the fact that we are always trying to secure ourselves, reassuring ourselves that we are all right. We are constantly looking for something to hang on to, and on this path of self-deception is the desire to see miracles. We've heard stories in the Bible or other sacred texts describing the lives of great saints, yogis, prophets, and avatars. You would like to prove that such miracles do exist because you would like to be on the side of the doctrine, the side of the miracles, to be sure that what you are doing is on the side of the good. You would like to do something fantastic, extraordinary, super extraordinary, one of those who turned the world upside down and such a miracle must mean that we are on to something, that we have found the true way at last. Such intense attempts to prove ourselves is when we separate ourselves, which makes us believe we are very different from everyone else. This sort of attempt to prove our own uniqueness is just an attempt to validate our ego self-deception, which is very closed in, an introverted situation. We have no time to relate to anyone else, our friends, our relatives. We are concerned only with ourselves. This approach becomes very tedious and stale. We begin to realize that we have been deceiving ourselves and we begin to move closer to the genuine open way. She said, Can you explain how to rise beyond self-deception? To discover self-deception, we suffer from tremendous paranoia and self-criticism, which is helpful. It is good to experience the hopelessness of ambition, of trying to be open, of trying to cheer ourselves up, because this prepares the ground for another type of aptitude towards spirituality. The whole point we are trying to get is, when are we really going to be open? Really? The action of our mind is so overlapping. If I do this, then that is going to happen. And if I do that, then this is going to happen. How can one escape self-deception? I recognize it, I see it, but how am I going to get out of it? I'm afraid each of us has to go through this individually. Someone practicing could say this is the right path for me, and they work on their self, and get more involved in a chain reaction of overlapping defeats. Well, then what next, they might ask. Then I might say, relax yourself, but what else can I do, they will say. Haven't you got any suggestions? And so I say, I cannot give any immediate solutions to your problems because I have to know what is wrong with you from the start. This is something a professional might say. And so they ask, which part does not function? Which aspect does not work? Surely the individual thinks something is wrong. They may practice yoga, breathing, prayer, meditation, and yet the problems come back again and again and again. They may have great faith in doctrines, teachings, and methods. They may love their teachers and have complete faith in them. But what is wrong with me, they ask again. Maybe I have bad karma, or maybe I am the black sheep, they say. Could that be so? And if so, then they say, I will go on a pilgrimage to Israel, Africa, or India, and I will make any sacrifice needed. I can starve myself. I will take any vow because I really want to get it. What can I do? Isn't there anything in the books? Is there some medicine I can take? Or a sacrifice I can perform? And so a person may become very grumpy, and quite rightly in a way. You may visit a teacher, or a spiritual friend, 
looking for answers again and again and again. Then what is wrong? In fact, nothing is wrong at all. Absolutely nothing. The situation is quite bearable as far as your teacher is concerned. But there is a period of waiting on your part. Trying to get over something is in itself wrong. Because we are in a waiting period means so much concentration in yourself. Working inward rather than working outward. She said. And is this why we are in America? Everyone is centralized in the notion of how hard they can work, what they can gain, and this is all part of the ego's game. And then what is the point? The teacher asked. The whole point is the open path, the open way. As we have thoroughly examined and experienced self-deception, we have been carrying such a heavy burden, like a tortoise carrying its shell. We have continually attempted to seal ourselves in the shell trying to get somewhere with such aggression and speed. But we must give up all our aggression and speed. We must give up the quality of demanding. We must develop compassion for ourselves. And then the open way just begins, she said. And can you tell me more about compassion? It is the key to the open way. And so the idea of compassion is in terms of clarity, which contains fundamental warmth. This is the act of trusting in yourself. As your practice becomes more prominent in daily life activities, you begin to trust yourself and have a compassionate attitude. Compassion in this sense is not feeling sorry for something. It is basic warmth. As much space and clarity as there is. There is that much warmth as well. Some delightful feeling of positive things happening in yourself. Life is not a mechanical drag in terms of a self-conscious meditation, but rather the meditation is a delightful and spontaneous thing to do. It is the continual act of making friends with yourself. By making friends with yourself, this compassion becomes a bridge to the world outside. Trust and compassion for oneself brings inspiration to dance with life, to communicate with the energies of the world. Lacking this kind of inspiration and openness, the spiritual path becomes the confused path of desire. One remains trapped in desire to improve oneself, the desire to achieve imagined goals. If we feel that we cannot achieve our goal, we suffer despair and the self-torture of unfulfilled ambition. On the other hand, if we feel that we are succeeding in achieving our goal, we might become self-satisfied and aggressive. Then we might say, I know what I'm doing, don't touch me. But compassion has nothing to do with achievement at all. It is spacious and very generous. When a person develops real compassion, he or she is being generous to others or to themselves without direction, without doing it for me or for them. It is filled with joy, spontaneously existing joy, which contains tremendous wealth and richness. Once you can afford to be open, if you give up your psychological attitude of demand, then basic health begins to evolve, which leads to transcendent action of morality or discipline. Having given up everything without reference to the basic criteria of I am doing this or I am doing that without reference to oneself, then other situations connected with maintaining ego or collecting becomes irrelevant. This is the ultimate morality and it intensifies the situation of openness and bravery. You are not afraid of hurting yourself or anyone else because you are completely open. As you feel inspired by situations, this brings patience as a quality of delight. 
then you become even more open, and you do not regard anything as being rejected or accepted. You are just trying to go along with each situation. You experience no warfare of any kind, neither trying to defeat an enemy nor trying to achieve a goal. There is no involvement with collecting or giving, no hope or fear at all. This is the development of transcendent knowledge, the ability to see situations as they are. So much of the main theme of the open way is that we must begin to abandon the basic struggle of ego. To be completely open is to have that kind of absolute trust in yourself, which is the real meaning of compassion and love. As Christ said, love thy neighbor. But how do we love? Love is not the experience of beauty or romantic joy alone. Love is associated with ugliness and pain and aggression as well as the beauty of the world. It is not the reaction of heaven. Love and compassion, which is the open path, is associated with what is. In order to develop love, universal love, cosmic love, or whatever you want to call it, one must accept the whole situation of life as it is, both light and dark, the good and the bad, she said. And when I look to the order of the world, then what is the problem? The basic problem we seem to be facing is that we are too involved with trying to prove something. When you are trying to prove or get something, you are not open anymore. You have to check everything. You have to arrange it correctly. This is such a paranoid way to live and really does not prove anything. You might want to set the record straight, to prove that we have to build the greatest order or the biggest tower, or that we have collected the most, the longest, or the most gigantic. But who is going to remember that record when you are dead? Who will remember in 100 years, or in 10 years, or in 10 minutes? The records that count are those of the given moment, of the now. The openness is taking place now, she said. But are we going to make it? One must open oneself to life, communicate with it. Perhaps you are fighting to develop love and peace, struggling to achieve them. So you say, we are going to make it. We are going to spend thousands of dollars in order to broadcast the doctrine of love or of our religion everywhere. We are going to proclaim it. Okay, proclaim it. Do it. Spend your money. But what about the speed and aggression behind what you are doing? Why do you have to push us into the acceptance of your love? Why is there such a speed and force involved? If your love is moving with the same speed and drive as other people's hatred, then something appears to be wrong. It would seem to be the same as calling darkness light. There is so much ambition involved, taking the form of persuading. It is not an open situation of communication with the things as they are. The ultimate implication of the words, peace on earth, is to remove altogether the ideas of peace and war and open yourself equally and completely to the positive and negative aspects of the world. It is like seeing the world from an aerial point of view. There is light, there is dark, both are accepted. You are not trying to defend the light against the dark. Openness means this kind of absolute trust and self-confidence. The open situation of compassion works this way rather than by deliberately attempting to create your wish. When we are trying to prove or get something, we are not open anymore, she said. And what if there is war? What do we make of this? War is dangerous. The open way includes service. And what I mean by this 
is that there can be a shift, like a gear or wheel turning, and so a train can change tracks as the coals and fire start burning. A spiritual fire could overcome war, but it's not something to hope for. Rather, we can serve more. Imagine a shift from fighting to supporting the world through volunteering and selfless service and permanent agriculture. With a shift like this, the open way persists, she said. And what about the great religious traditions, the teachings? They speak of discipline, rules, and regulations. How do we reconcile these with the notion of a sense of humor? Well, let's examine the question properly. Are the regulations, the discipline, the practice or morality really based on purely judgmental attitudes of good as opposed to bad? Are the great spiritual teachings really advocating that we fight evil because we are on the side of light, the side of peace? Are they telling us to fight against the other undesirable side, the bad and the dark? That is a big question. If there is wisdom in the sacred teachings, there should not be any war. As long as a person is involved with warfare, trying to defend or attack, then his or her action is not sacred. It is mundane dualistic, a battlefield situation. One would not expect the great teachings to be as simple-minded as that, trying to be good, fighting the bad. Such would be the approach of a Hollywood Western movie. Even before you have seen the conclusion, you already know precisely that the goodies will not be killed and the baddies are going to be smashed. This approach is creating spiritual achievement. I cannot say that a sense of humor should be wildly unleashed. I speak of seeing something more than just warfare, struggle, and duality. If we regard the path of spirituality as a battlefield, then we are weak and feeble. Then our progress on the path will depend on how great of an area we have conquered, upon the subjugation of our own and others' faults, upon how much negativity we have eliminated. If we keep a sense of humor, this means we are seeing both poles of the situation as they are, from an aerial point of view. There is good and there is bad, and you can see both with a panoramic view as though you were from above. Then you begin to feel that these little people on the ground, whether they're killing each other or making love or just being little people, are very insignificant in the sense that if they begin to make a big deal of their warfare or lovemaking, then we begin to see the ironic aspect of their clamor. A sense of humor seems to come from all-pervading joy, joy which has room to expand into a completely open situation because it is not involved with the battle between this and that. Joy develops in the panoramic situation of seeing or feeling the whole ground, the open ground, if you try to treat life as serious business, if you try to make life somber, as though everything is a big deal, then it is funny. Why is it such a big deal? There is a story of a certain monk who renounced the confused life and decided to go live in a cave to pray and meditate all the time. Prior to this, he had been thinking continually of pain and suffering. He was called the dark-faced one because he never smiled at all but saw everything in life in terms of pain. He remained in retreat for many years, very solemn and deadly honest, until one day he looked at the shrine and saw that someone had presented a big lump of turquoise as a gift to him. As he viewed the gift, he saw a mouse creep in and try to drag away the piece of turquoise. The mouse could not do it, so it went back in its hole and called another mouse. 
They both tried to drag away this big lump of turquoise, but could not do it. So they squeaked together and called eight more mice who came and finally managed to drag the whole lump of turquoise back into their hole. Then for the first time, the monk began to laugh and smile. This was his first introduction to openness, a sudden flash of enlightenment. So a sense of humor is not merely a matter of trying to tell jokes or make puns or trying to be funny in deliberate fashion. It involves seeing the basic irony of the comparison of extremes so that no one is caught taking themselves too seriously, so that one does not seriously play their game of hope and fear. This is why the experience of the spiritual path is so significant, why the practice of meditation is the most insignificant experience of all. It is an insignificant situation of openness without involvement in our values of judgment. And then you begin to see all the games going on all around you. Someone is trying to be stern and spiritually solemn, trying to be a good person. Such a person might take it seriously if someone offended him. They might want to fight. If you work in accordance with the basic insignificance of what is, then you begin to see the humor in this kind of seriousness, in people making such a big deal about things. A very remarkable example of this is St. Francis of Assisi, who many called God's fool. And foolish he may have appeared, but in truth, he was God's precious jewel. St. Francis was born to a wealthy merchant, but in his twenties during the fifth crusade between the Christians and Muslims, he was held prisoner for nearly a year. He had several experiences that shaped his faith, and it was reported that on one occasion, he passed by a leper who he previously would have shunned out of fear, but this time, St. Francis embraced the leper and kissed him. He celebrated the most marginalized, and it didn't matter if a person was rich, poor, healthy, or impure. St. Francis renounced his worldly goods and embraced a life of poverty. He was said to have stripped down naked and went on living joyfully in simplicity. He cared for outcasts when he experienced nature as a place of divine encounter. Was he a holy fool or God's jewel? Francis was loved for his joy, his generous self-giving, and his open-heartedness, which led him to find God in nature. He was a mystic and a pilgrim who lived in simplicity and wonderful harmony with God, with others, and with the wildest life. Even upon Francis's death, when he was ill as his eyes were stuck shut with infection, the Pope ordered that Francis's eyes be cauterized by pressing burning iron onto the infected eyes. Francis claimed to have not felt anything at all when this was done, but rather he called out in praise and honor of Brother Fire. This is the open way, the hard way, which is being open to everything as an offering for something greater than one's own self in wonder of God's beauty that always transpires. One of his Franciscan brothers overheard Francis praying through the night. And so Francis said, O oh God, who are you and who am I? Why, yes, Francis's body may have passed on long ago, but his radiance will never die. He has inspired the Christian church, the Franciscans, as well as many others. And today, the Franciscans lead the order of the just uniting one holy and universal following to uphold morality, compassion, and truth 
for all our sisters and brothers. The sacred function of a fool like Francis's life story is to tear down the illusions we hold so near and dear and to illuminate what is new through playfulness and humor. Using shocking or unconventional behavior to challenge the status quo or social norms. A fool like Francis helps us see beyond the dualities we live by. So what is Francis's legacy? He was a torchbearer, holding up brother fire high to illuminate all that is true. As Francis said, no one told me what I ought to do. And at the end of his life, Francis was heard saying, who are you, O God, and who am I? God has called me to be a new fool for the world. The world is our monastery and cloister. I have done what is mine to do. Now you must do yours, said Ma.